First John chapter three, verse one says, behold, what manner of love the Father, and your translation might say, has bestowed or lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And John says that everyone who has this hope, seeing Jesus, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So we're teaching through the New Testament. We're making our way to the book of Revelation. We'll be there the week after Labor Day. Uh, but in between the writings of John and the book of Revelation, we're going to do a small series called Life Verse. Uh, some of us have a life verse. You may not have a life verse yet. But a life verse is a verse that stands out among all other verses. It's a verse that we cling to and lean on um, in times that we're desperate and just in great times. Well, if you're looking for a life verse, this is a great candidate. The first three chapters of 1 John chapter 3, the first three verses, behold what manner of God, love God has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be like, but we know when we see him, we shall be like him. I mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones at the beginning of this series. He wrote five volumes on this very short book called 1 John, and yet he never preached on these three verses. He said they were too full of wonder and amazement, and he felt unworthy to preach on them. And yet this is our portion this morning. This is our grand adventure to look at these amazing three verses that reveal all that God has done for us. Now I want to begin with a story that was told by a pastor in Los Angeles. He was ministering on a college campus to a young lady who had kind of lost her way with God. Because of a series of setbacks and disappointments, she began to doubt God's love for her, his personal care, and whether God existed at all. After about an hour of ministering to this young lady, the pastor finally said, ma'am, what could God do to convince you of his love? And her answer was, make it snow. And he reveals that the next day, fresh snow had covered that college campus. Now, many Christians could tell God stories like that, right? Special times where God intervened, did things for you and me that maybe we could never tell anyone else, but we were just reminded of his presence. Now, these aren't sustainable. They're not normative. Uh, again, we can't even tell people about this. I call these, you know, Elijah being fed by the raven stories, just personal to you and me. But at best, they're unsustainable, and at worst, the critics would kill us, right? God is not a genie in the bottle who at every whim we have or every disappointment, he's gonna make it snow or have dolphins jump out of the sea or checks come in the mail. No, he's done something far greater than all of that, and John says, that's what I want you to gaze upon. That word behold means to consider, to gaze, to meditate, to contemplate. And this isn't like on your lunch hour or 30 seconds before you start your commute. This is a lifelong path to joy where our minds are renewed on the overwhelming, lavish love of God. John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that you and I 
will be called children of God. I believe Christians live subpar lives because they don't know who they are in Jesus Christ. I really do. They're comparing themselves with other Christians and the world around them and never really consider all that God has done. For those who have repented and Christ has become your savior, John says there's two things about who we are, our position in Christ. There's a now and a not yet. The now is we are the children of God, but there is a future destiny where it says when we see him, we will be like him. That, that is a lifelong meditation on what God has not only for now, but for the destiny of all his children. Now some of you are thinking, Pastor Bob, big deal. Uh, we're all God's children, right? We're all human beings. God's the creator, sustainer of the universe. We're all God's children. And to believe that is to miss the entire teaching of scripture. The Bible is very clear that God as creator loves everyone. Please understand that. God loves the backslider. He loves the sinner. He loves believers. God loves everyone. But we're not all God's children. Our parents, Adam and Eve, were told in the day that they sinned, they would surely die. And by their sin, they broke relationship with a holy God and spiritually and physically began to decay. Man in the garden was eternally separated from a holy God for all time. And the history of world religion is man's way to relink himself with a holy God. That's where we get the word religion. It's out of the Latin, relingari, to relink ourselves, to find our way back. And 99% of world religion is effort, right? We're going to claw our way back. We're going to achieve. It's going to be through good works, right? Jesus said to the religious leaders of that day who wanted to kill him, you are of your father, the devil, because the desires you have, he has had from the beginning. And then Ephesians chapter 2 says this about our former and present condition. It says, you, believers, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's our former condition. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and listen, were by nature, we were born to this, the children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. At the day of repentance, you moved from a carnal nature and became a child of God. And God's love was lavished upon you. God loves everyone. But John tells us in the gospel, chapter one, verse 12, that as many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Now I wanna walk you through this really quick because the whole Bible teaches this. When man sinned, he should have surely died. But what did God do? In the richness of his mercy, he clothed Adam and Eve. They tried to clothe themselves, right? That's religion. But God slays an animal, the first death in the Bible, and he covers them with skins. And there's the Bible's first prophecy that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
In other words, God himself would provide a sacrifice. We see that later in Genesis chapter 22, where God tells Abraham, the father of this nation, of many nations, the nation of Israel and all peoples, to take the heir, to take his son, his only son, the son that he loves, and to bring him to a place and worship and to sacrifice his son. It's the first time the Bible mentions love. And the greatest form of love is the love of the father for his only son. Abraham obeys. He takes his son. He puts the wood upon him. And an angel comes and says, Abraham, don't kill your son. God knows your heart. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. And that becomes the sacrifice. And the Bible says God would provide literally himself a sacrifice. Now this one story for all time should have signaled to all people that God does not require sacrifice. He's going to be the sacrifice. And yet what does every religion do? Sacrifice. Sacrifice things for God. I grew up, I was Catholic, and every Lent, I remember on Friday, we couldn't eat meat. So we found ways to skirt around the rules. When I was in college, there, there was a guy who literally walked through our hall selling cheesesteaks and hoagies. And guess what we did? We waited till midnight, 12.01. And we bought our meat because we couldn't eat meat for Lent. And people gave up, you know, music and back in that day, pot and pizza and all different things. And we should have known, this is ridiculous, that somehow this sacrifice is going to get us closer to God. Now, if, if you are doing that in the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, that's wonderful. But man has tried to sacrifice, and yet God says it's not sacrifice. In fact, I will become the sacrifice. The picture gets clearer in Exodus, where after 400 years, get this, of bondage, of slavery, God brings them out with a mighty hand. And when he brings them out with a mighty hand, he brings them to Sinai where they're given the Ten Commandments. And what does God say? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, God's telling them before he gives them the commands, I have made you a free people. And now I'm going to give you laws to live by. And these laws are for your growing and your learning. And if you live by these laws, you know, and there's all these benefits, and every man will sit behind his vine and his fig tree. And again, for all of time, we should have realized God's not concerned about conduct first. When God looks at the world, people that are far from God, people that aren't living for God, God's not worried about their conduct. God's worried about their salvation. Once they get saved, then he's worried about their conduct. But first, it's about freedom. It's always freedom first, and it's conduct second. Notice where the commandments were given. They were given in the land between Egypt and Israel. The land in between, Sinai, is where the commands were given. Why? Because God wanted people to know for all time that these commands were for all nations, for all people. They weren't for the Egyptians. They weren't for Israel. They were for everyone. Second reason was that God didn't want a place where these could be venerated, as we're prone to do. And then finally, God wanted them to know wherever they went, wherever the, their souls touched, the soles of their feet touched, these laws would work. And people have proven that out for century after century. One of the major themes in John's writing is the world. In fact, it says it here, we are the children of God. The world doesn't know us 
because it didn't know him. If you flip over, it's probably in your other paragraph, chapter uh, 2, verse 15, John gives this command, don't love the world or the things in the world. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not hidden. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There was no greater picture of the world than Egypt. The palaces, the pyramids, the grandeur of Egypt was a type of the world and God said, that's what I freed you from. It's an illusion. Everything in Egypt was built on the backs of slaves and it's all passing away. It's all lustful and it can never fulfill. And yet, what did God's people do time and time again? Looked back as we're prone to do. When times get difficult, they didn't remember the bondage, the slavery. All they could remember were the things that they saw in Egypt. And I'm going to say nothing will sap Christian joy more than looking back to Egypt. Looking back to the world, desiring something of a former life. Because it's all an illusion. It's all passing away. Scotty Smith is a pastor in Franklin, outside of Nashville. And for years, most contemporary Christian artists went to his church. And he's written a book that I've looked at time and time again called The Objects of Our Affection. And he chronicles how he went through a time where he kind of lost joy and God brought it back to him. And he quotes another Old Testament verse. This is amazing. He calls it the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It's Zephaniah 3.17. Just, just gaze upon this. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will delight in you. And he will quiet over you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is the God of the Old Testament we've been looking at. We haven't looked at one New Testament verse yet. Uh, there's a big move in the evangelical church today to disassociate ourselves with the God of Old Testament because this is the God of judgment. Well, Zephaniah was a prophet and he was writing about God's judgment, but right in the middle of it he said, this is what God longs to do, right? In the Ten Commandments it says, God will bring judgment upon the generations, but will show mercy and kindness to thousands. That's what he longs to do. Do you ever get, see God singing over you and rejoicing over you? Do you ever see God doing that because you're his child? Now, a lot of you have children and I have children. I just want to tell you, they're my children and nothing will ever change that. They have had wonderful accomplishments in the some 30 years we've been raising them. And though I'm a proud dad, and though those have been wonderful times, it hasn't moved the needle one iota on my love for them. I just love them because they're mine. We have a lot of families that adopt here. Those adopted children of yours, no matter what they do. Those of you with small children, I remember, toddlers can have a nasty day, right? Ornery and just miserable. And then you put them in the bed. And they close their eyes. And you walk in the room and say, should we have another, right? <laughs> and you look at their freckles and their dimples and their hair and they're yours. You ever see God looking at you that way? Rejoicing over you with singing? The Bible is the only religious in the book in the world that reveals a God like this. This is what's so 
wowing and amazing. A God not only of commandments but relationship. One God revealed as a father. No image could bear who he is. He's moral. He's creator. He's the, he's the creator of not only human beings but all creation we see around us. He loves and desires love. He proclaims the value of every human being and the universal rights of all people. And we are the objects of his affection. I was in New England this week visiting my sister. For 25 years I preached to her and her husband and not one iota of movement towards the gospel. And you know how it works with your family, right? You preach real hard and you give up. You preach again, you give up. Kind of goes that way. 25 years. So 2016, I'm running a trip to Israel. She calls me with a month before the trip and says, I want to go to Israel. I'm like, oh my gosh, the trip's almost full. Gosh, one month before, I can't believe it. Uh, why do you want to go? She goes, I don't know, I just want to go. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, she just wants to go because it's cold and it's miserable and it's the winter and just wants to get out of Dodge. And so we get on the trip and I announce that the next day we're going to the baptismal site and anyone who wants to get baptized, let me know and we'll prepare for that. We're on a long bus ride. She sits next to me and says, I want to get baptized tomorrow. And I'm like, well, here's the deal. Like, this is what baptism means. She goes, I know what it means. I'm a Christian now. Now, here's the irony of this. This is the first time I led an Israel trip where no one on my family was with me. None of my kids, my wife wasn't there, none of my relatives. I knew this day was coming where I'm going to go with no one in my family. And God chooses this time to bring my sister and bring her to salvation. And growing up with her, I knew the house we grew up in. I told her, everything stays in this pool. And God loves you unconditionally. And it felt like another world, another life. And I realized what God can only do was unimaginable. This week when I walked in her house, she had the YouTube channel on of Christian worship, Bethel and Hillsong. And it was just overwhelming to see the love of God being lavished upon her. Scotty Smith said, what would it feel like in your heart to know that God not only accepts you, but he also richly enjoys you? To know that your company is his pleasure, your fellowship is his joy, your face his delight. What effect would such a viewpoint have on how you think about God, yourself, and others? How would that belief shape your view of all things, even how you chart the whole course of your life? No, our Heavenly Father isn't calling us to kill all desire and hope of enjoyment and being enjoyed. Neither does he instruct us to work hard to overcome a bad self-image. Rather, he calls us to develop a delightful relationship with him and then to base all other relationships on this most holy relationship of all joy. Can you gaze upon that? Can you consider the lavish love that God has bestowed on every child of God. See, this is what sustains us. This is what is going to drive us through life. This is what's going to help us in the most difficult times to know that God has made us his children. Again, our joy gets sapped because we look at other Christians. We look at what they're achieving. We look at what other people are doing. And every once in a while, we just have to sit down and say, oh my gosh, no matter what's going on, I am a child of God. That's who I am. 
right here in the now. But it gets better than this. Because John says, now we are the children of God, but there is a future for every one of us, a destiny that when we see him, we shall be like him because we shall know him as we are known. Now, the Bible's a big book, isn't it? It's a very big book. Take a lifetime to understand and read and comprehend. And yet in this book, this big book, if you've never read it, I'm sure I would think if I picked it up, I would get glimpses of the afterlife. What's heaven gonna be like? And yet there are very few. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Behold, if it were not true, I wouldn't have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you where, where I am, you'll always be with me. It's about all he tells us. In Revelation, we see the throne of God. We see some of the activity. Uh, the prophets and the psalmist give us a glimpse. But basically, Paul, when he wrote Corinthians, was right. We see through a glass dimly right now. One translation says, through a dark window. But then face to face. I was preaching in Moscow at a pastor's conference. I had brought my son along. He was 16 at the time. We have, a, we have Russians in the church. A lot of them work in our cafe. So please excuse me for one minute. The food was dreadful at this camp. Um, I could eat almost anything, but this was pretty bad. Um, one morning for breakfast, we had boiled noodles and hot milk. And you can't in hospitality show that you don't like it, so you have to eat it, right? However, at the beginning of the conference, they said, however, right over there at that door, and I'll never forget, I, I can spot anywhere in Russian language what a cafe is, okay? And they said, in the cafe, we have coffee and ice cream and all this. So day one, we go to the cafe, and their doors are not clear. Like our cafe or delis, you can see right inside all the activity. Theirs are are dark. And so we walked by, my son and me, and we thought, okay, it's closed, and day two, it's closed, and geez, day three, I just went up to the door and I opened it up. And there it was. <laughs> Ice cream and cappuccino, big screen television watching soccer, and all the delights you could ever want. The Bible doesn't give us many descriptions, but it says when we see him, we shall be like him. Most of you know I'm not a fan of all these books of people that have gone to heaven. I know some of you are mad at that. But they are so far beneath what God has planned for us. So far beneath. Sometimes the skeptics come along and say, here's the problem with religion. It's all about the sweet by and by. No, it's not. John said, this is eternal life, that you might know him and have life in his name. I've written these things that your joy might be filled in any circumstance of life. In this life we have joy, but like the wedding of Cana, he saved the best for last. There is an appointment with destiny that's gonna be overwhelming. And when we turn to things like this, we must turn to the great C.S. Lewis. There's a reason he gets a whole section in our bookstore. Lewis said the pages of the New Testament Rustle with what lies ahead. The world beyond, and he basically said, where the lower pleasures of this life will be removed and there will be a great 
glorious future. The appetites of this life, what we're longing for, what all these people that have written the books about heaven say it's going to be like are mere pleasures of this world. Everything everybody's after will be meaningless in that day. Lewis said, a fountainhead lies before us which the whole person will drink joy at the fountain of joy. That's a quote from Augustine. The rapture of the saved soul will flow over into the glorified body and our lifelong nostalgia, all of our longings will be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we have only seen from the outside. This desire to get in is no neurotic fantasy, but Lewis said the truest index of our own real situation. Don't you all feel like that? Some of you are like, Pastor Bob, I don't even know what you just read. (laughs) Lewis is saying, even as a believer, you can only get so far, right? Marriage is a wonderful thing, but there are days where marriage isn't wonderful. And all the pleasures God has given, sex and and career and kids and church life and all these wonderful things, there are glimpses, there are snapshots where they fill, but most of the time that desire is not filled, even as a Christian Because Lewis said the New Testament wrestles with the idea that there is a fountainhead where there will be continuous joy when we see him. And John, in his final words to us, just to back up all that he said, writes this in Revelation 21. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. Get this, for all the former things have passed away. When I do funerals, people say, is there gonna be golf in heaven? Are we gonna swim in heaven? Are we gonna eat in heaven? I don't know what we're gonna do in heaven, but it's gonna make what we're doing right now look like a joke. Because one day, there will be ecstasy, fullness of joy. And everyone who believes this makes himself pure. What does that mean? Works? No. It means we are a free people. And because we are the children of God and because this is our destiny, we're not concerned with the meager things of this world that everybody's fighting and grabbing for. We are on a different road whose path is getting clearer, as Paul said, day by day. We already see our lives passing and this world passing. The glory of Egypt is gone. Everything they strove for is gone. And yet day by day, the path we're on is getting brighter. And we can see it through the pages of Scripture. We can see it in the world around us. I share with you, when we started John, the words that John remembered when Jesus said, I am the gardener, my father is the vindresser. That God is a picture of all of us. 
and he's clipping us like roses. He's refining us. He's letting all the, all the juice go to the branch that we might be refined. And God is fashioning us. And when I read this this week, I was reminded of kind of a snapshot God gave me. When we were building these facilities, we did a series of in-home meetings. So we had to choose all the people who had larger homes in the church could hold 25 to 50 people. Many of these homes had like three doors. You couldn't even tell what their front door was. And I would go from house to house to house on a particular day. And we finally got to this one house. And we had a part-time staffer who came to one of the doors to say, hey, here's the entrance. And this person has a smaller home, lives kind of paycheck by paycheck. And in a snapshot, I thought of that verse, in my father's house there are many mansions. And I saw this woman at the door and I said, oh my gosh, one day, one day, you're going to have something like this and far superior. And it's not going to be physical. The word is abiding places. The translators chose mansions because that's the only thing that comes to their mind. You see, John said one day everything's going to equal out. There's going to be no more rich or poor, black or white, male or female. It's all going to disappear. All the status, all the criteria. And we're going to gaze upon him. And there's going to be fullness of joy. And there's going to be a purity like we've never known before.